Hello everybody, this is Michelle Tandler. I am recording from my apartment in San Francisco. This morning I'm gonna try something different that I've never done before, which is talk about something that I just wrote about, which I'm gonna call the Chesa effect. Um, I saw a video last night on Twitter that Michael Schellenberger posted. It's a video interviewing someone on the streets of San Francisco talking about how he's been here for seven years addicted to drugs, and he sort of explains his um, experience and what's going on. I'm going to play that video for you and then talk about how I think our bail policies are contributing, if not absolutely fueling um, what I would say is an unbelievably inhumane situation on the streets of San Francisco. All right, so first I'm gonna play this video. It is two minutes long. You get shot in the back of the head right here on Mission Street, like uh. probably two months ago. Uh. It was definitely a homeless guy that got shot. And the guy that shot him looks like to probably be homeless. Where are you from? Alabama. How long have you been on the street? Seven years. Drug of choice? Heroin. What percentage of people are still using heroin versus fentanyl? Oh man, 5% still use heroin, maybe. What about meth? Meth is just like a given, mostly. You gotta do something to counteract the downer, so people either do meth or crack. What does it cost per day? It's between 40 and 80 bucks okay. um, to maintain. Were you using before you came? I did pills for probably 12 years and then did heroin. Everybody, like the majority of homeless people are, the drugs is an integral, if not main reason why you're out here. And what, what percentage of people on the street you say are from San Francisco originally? Um, uh, from San Francisco originally, maybe maybe 10, probably more like 6 or 7. Percent? How much does it cost to, to, for your, to meet your habit? We're looking at 60 bucks a day. Has the price come down or gone just, up? It's been like a race to the bottom in terms of pricing to where a gram used to, uh, even as little as two years ago would have been $200. Now it's down to 15 or 20. How do you make your money? Petty crime. Like what kind of stuff? Boosting and getting in on cars. How do you boost? You go in a store and put stuff in your bag and get out. And then where do you sell it? There's centers, like essentially one corner where everybody in the city goes to sell their shit. Is that United Nations Plaza? Yeah. Okay. okay. Or today's the flea market. So to, to use, you would love the flea market. It's hella exciting. I've seen people, I've seen people get stabbed. I've seen people die. I've held somebody as they die. Oh. Um, How'd they I die? Friends die. They got stabbed in the neck. People are are people on the street because they want to be on the street. Definitely, addiction is the main driving force. And then after that, you're in a position to where you're you're, you're stuck. Like you can't really go back. It's hard to go from oh okay, I'm done being homeless now. I'm gonna just turn my life around and and all of that. Especially with addiction to so it's doable and it's possible. And I I hope to do it someday. But so that's pretty astounding journalism right there. I was very impressed by the amount of information that Michael was able to gather from this man um, named Ben. The part that really stuck out to me was around the price of a gram of heroin. I'm just going to replay that section right now. We're looking at 60 bucks a day. Has the price come down or gone up? It's been like a race to the bottom in terms of pricing to where a gram used to, uh, even as little as two years ago, would have been $200. Now it's down to 15 or 20. All right. So just as some context, uh, our DA, Chesa Budin, entered office exactly two years ago in January of 2020. And according to this man, the price of heroin has gone from $200 a gram to $15 to $20 per gram um, 
which is a drop of 90% in price. So this caught my attention dramatically because I'm a former VC and when I see a price drop like that, my eyes perk up. That is an astounding price drop. I've never really heard of a price falling that fast, that dramatically in such a short period of time. That's pretty mind-blowing. Additionally, my background, just for some context, is when I was a VC, I studied marketplaces. Uh, I love marketplaces. I think they're absolutely fascinating. They're really complex. I love thinking about how you can bring two sides of a market together to introduce them to one another to make commerce happen. It's a very powerful uh, function in society. You know, we've had a ton of marketplace companies built here in the Bay Area, Uber, Lyft, Airbnb, um, Thumbtack, which I ultimately worked at for two years. And so I heard this price drop anecdote and thought, okay, let's think about this for a second. Um, So basically, you know, two years ago, D.A. Budin entered office. He got rid of cash bail. That was the first thing he did. It was a huge election um, or it was a huge campaign promise that he made. Um, This seems like more than a random coincidence that price drop is just so stark. So I started thinking, okay, well, how how could they be connected? And this image came together in my mind of the flywheel circle that is characteristic of marketplaces. And so a flywheel effect, um, I can explain what that is. It's essentially, um, I'm going to pull up this article here to give a more proper definition. So by definition, a flywheel is a heavy revolving wheel that is used in a machine to increase momentum and therefore provide greater stability to the machine. Given its weight, the flywheel is difficult to push from a standstill. And once it starts moving, it gradually builds momentum, which eventually enables the wheel to turn by itself and create even more of its own momentum through a self-reinforcing loop. So a flywheel effect is also known as a virtuous cycle, and it represents a way to, um, it sort of represents the way that marketplaces have what we call liquidity, which is the flow of goods in the market uh, and this momentum. And so as a VC, when you're evaluating marketplaces, you're looking for signs of a flywheel effect because they're really powerful. Once a flywheel starts taking place, that market's sort of like up and running and it, it gathers this momentum and it's harder and harder to compete with. So think of YouTube. It's a marketplace between creators and viewers, and it's very hard to disrupt because, um, which, because of the dynamics that I'm about to explain. So the way that a flywheel usually happens is Certain certain effects happen to get a supply side going, and then that leads to demand, and then which leads to more supply, or vice versa. You have a bunch of demand, which leads to supply, which leads to then um, more demand. So, for example, Amazon has a very powerful flywheel effect. You have a bunch of demand for goods, so then all these suppliers come onto the market, which leads to prices becoming very competitive and dropping, which leads to more demand, and it, it has this very powerful effect. All right, so let's think about how Budin might have been the catalyst to set this flywheel in motion. So I believe that in reducing criminal charges and ending bail for dealers, he essentially pumped gas into our drug market, Um, very similar to how VCs infuse early marketplaces with cash to get things going. So when a marketplace is just getting started, what you look for as VC is a little signal of tiny flywheel happening. So you want to see product market fit. You want to see that there's exchanges happening and you want to see signals that there could be this flywheel. And then what happens is you decide if you're going to invest. And when a VC invests, they infuse cash into the company. This cash is then used to boost the weaker side of the marketplace. So that could be either the supply side or the demand side. Sometimes there's three or even four-sided marketplaces. But for the sake of this recording, I'll just stick with a more simple marketplace, two-sided, supply and demand. So for example, if you have very strong supply, you could use cash to advertise and acquire customers. So if this man in this video is correct and the price has dropped that 
that far in two years, I think there's a pretty solid chance that Chesa Budin's policies sparked the flywheel of San Francisco's illegal drug market. And here's how I view it. I have an image here that I'll link in this recording. Um, but basically, at the top of the, you have to imagine a circle here. At the top of the circle, it says dealers enter the market. Now, I added something above that with an arrow pointing into it that says no bail slash reduced risk for dealing. Basically, what I'm arguing is that in reducing um, the risk for dealing by getting rid of bail, more dealers entered the market. All right, so you have more dealers entering the market. This leads to more supply of drugs and people to sell them. When you have more supply of drugs, that leads to cheaper drugs because they're all competing, right? There's so many dealers out there that if they want to get customers, they have to drop their prices. So cheaper drugs. When you have cheaper drugs, word gets out. People are going to find out, oh, if you want to get really cheap heroin, come to San Francisco. So word gets out and more addicts come to San Francisco. This then leads to higher demand, which will then entice more dealers to enter the market. And so here you see you have this cycle. You would usually in a marketplace call it a virtuous cycle, although I'd say this is a vicious cycle. Um, and you see the flywheel effect. And now what I think we have going on here is thousands of people in San Francisco dealing, doing drugs and very entrenched, right? These are people that are building relationships. They know which block you can meet with which dealer to get which drug. Um, and this gets increasingly hard to disrupt. So in this scenario, if you want to carry the analogy forward, um, D.A. Budin basically acted like a VC. His policies acted like cash. Essentially, San Francisco invested in the drug market by reducing friction, which is jail, um, which then juiced the liquidity. We used to use this term juicing the stats. And in this scenario, I guess uh, if you want to play it forward, then you'd say the residents are like the LPs. So the voters of San Francisco essentially invested in Budin, similar to LPs, limited partners investing in a VC fund. Um, and so I guess one question on my mind is, you know, did San Francisco's did San Francisco voters know what they were investing in? Um, unclear. Could you argue that they forgot to do their due diligence or just were too lazy to do it? Um, perhaps. With marketplaces, it is very hard to wind things back. So I think this is going to be a pretty big wake up call for voters in San Francisco. Momentum is really hard to reverse. Uh, it's why there's been so much VC money pumped into marketplaces like Uber, Lyft, Airbnb and DoorDash. All these companies are essentially racing to get their flywheels in place and own the market and um, get sort of exclusive ownership over those markets. So actually, now that I think of it, following that analogy, you could say if the goal is to win as the biggest drug market, we're in a competition with L.A., Seattle and Portland. I need to do more thinking on that. But um, I don't think our I don't know if the analogy goes that far. All right. So. What does this mean? I think it will likely take years to reverse the damage done by the no cash bail policies. At this point, we have thousands of addicts living here. I think I've seen even before the pandemic, the estimate was that we had 27,000 intravenous drug users. Granted, now people smoke um, fentanyl and meth more than they inject heroin. But uh, I think it's probably safe to assume that that number, 27,000, has gone up. We have hundreds of dealers servicing them. Last I saw, I think we had over 500 dealers arrested last year. I also read a stat that the average number of days they spend in jail is something like four or five days. Um, basically, I think we have an entrenched marketplace that is fueled by addictive drugs and massive amounts of cash, which no one's paying taxes on. Additionally, there is an entire ecosystem of services wrapped around this dynamic. And I think this is important to understand as we think about how are we going to make things better in San Francisco. So we have hundreds of nonprofits here that are receiving millions of dollars to service um, this marketplace, basically all those who are addicted here in San Francisco. So thousands of people basically rely on this marketplace and its players and its continuing and its continuing dynamic for their livelihoods. 
there's this term we use here often, the homeless industrial complex. And I never really understood this term, but over the past couple of months, it started to become more clear. So basically, there's an ecosystem operating here in San Francisco, and it includes the nonprofits, the dealers, the addicts, and or those who are suffering from substance abuse um, and the government. It's basically all fueled uh, by the decriminalization of drugs. So a few years ago, I started thinking, I, I had this hypothesis one day, basically that the more money San Francisco spent, the worse our problems would become. I just was looking at all this data and seeing, you know, we're spending more and more money. The problems are getting worse and worse. It's very hard to understand. But actually, when you look at it like a marketplace, this all makes sense. The more money we spend, for example, um, or the more sort of positive energy that we fuel into this marketplace, whether that's giving out money or like cash and services, hotel rooms, paraphernalia, or sort of leniency, right? Like not um, not having any consequences for drug dealing. Basically, the more positive energy that we fuel into this marketplace, the more attractive San Francisco becomes to addicts. Basically, the more powerful the marketplace becomes, the more of a magnet it becomes, um, the more momentum it has. So uh, what do we do next? I mean, it depends on if we are okay with the current situation or not. We as residents, I think, are grappling now with how do we want to handle what's going on. We have quite a situation and it, and it really does have a lot of downstream negative impact Downtown San Francisco has become really unappealing to tourists. You go down there and it's it's dirty. There's, I mean, obviously there's lots of crime. Businesses are boarding up. A lot of businesses have gone out of business. I believe tourism is down 70% and tourism accounts for 30% of our GDP. I think there are, um, I forget the number of jobs. It's tens of thousands of jobs are tied up in the tourism industry. It really is our lifeblood as a city. And if we don't get this drug problem under control, I think we're going to have a really big issue with both unemployment as well as just a hugely reduced tax base. It, it creates an additional negative <laughs> negative cycle where the more businesses that go under, then the fewer like people there are going downtown to go shopping. The less foot traffic there is, the more businesses go under. So there's just all kinds of flywheels being set um, into flow here. I think that what will be required to turn this around is basically um, doing the opposite of what we're doing right now. So I think if we were to start arresting the dealers and putting them in jail for much longer than four days, maybe more like a month or two months, the price of drugs would go up. Other markets would be more compelling. So I think naturally a lot of people would leave the San Francisco drug market and go to other drug markets. Additionally, we could do things like actually offer help to people in a more compelling way. I think that right now we have a lot of open treatment beds. I think there's a question mark of why are more addicts not entering treatment when we have something like 70 open beds at any given time. So we might want to reevaluate how we offer treatment, what kind of treatment we offer, the ways that we're engaging with people and compelling them to go to treatment. Like, I wonder if there's interesting new things we could try, like offering cash in exchange for going to treatment or um, creating sober contingent housing that if you complete treatment, you can get housing for something like 90 or 180 days, um, offering jobs to people. I think there's a lot of things we could be doing, but basically they're all the opposite of what we're doing now, which is basically just fueling this marketplace and enticing people to come here. I have a lot of questions about how we got to where we are now and why so many people believe that this harm reduction approach is effective or um, uh, compassionate or morally correct. It doesn't make sense to me. I look at the stats. I look at how many people are dying. I think we had 700 people die of overdose last year, and I think it was 1,000 the year before. I look at people living in the streets, the amount of theft and crime, um, sort of the the fear that our residents have of people who are really high on meth and become kind of violent. Um, it just doesn't make sense to me. It's something I've been thinking about a lot. 
So I'd love to know what you all think of this. Um, please feel free to leave comments in the Substack, and I'll stop there. I know that was a bit of a ramble. Um, this is my first time doing this. And if you have any feedback for me on how I could do this better, please let me know. Um, you can just leave a comment below. All right. Thanks so much. I hope that this was informative.